Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 380. Today is Sunday, the 5th of July, 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Neil Schaefer. Neil's an influencer marketing speaker and consultant who helps businesses with their digital transformation of sales and marketing to develop and execute on social media marketing strategy, influencer marketing, and social selling initiatives. He's also a multiple-time author, including his latest book, about which we're going to talk, The Age of Influence. In this chat, you'll learn about how to sharpen your brand voice, engage with influencers effectively, and about turning your employees into influencers too. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Neil Schaefer, how the heck are you? These are wonderful days, and you decided to launch a book in the middle of the pandemic, The Age of Influence, The Power of Influencers to Elevate Your Brand. And you can imagine how much that titillated me. Tell us, in your own words, Neil, who you are these days. How do you describe yourself? Well, I am a digital and social media marketing author, consultant, educator, speaker. I think the coronavirus pandemic has not really changed what I do. It, it has limited the ability for me to do physical speaking, but uh, I am still doing virtual speaking, and there's actually a new sort of demand uh, generated for that. But at the heart of what I do is really educating businesses, marketers, small business owners, entrepreneurs on how to best leverage the digital and social media marketing tools that exist around them that very few people really maximize the potential for. And yes, in the middle of this pandemic, I actually wrote a book. Well, I published a book. The book was written some time ago, but the timing worked out that, uh, you know, really two days before lockdown in California, I published this book called The Age of Influence. And my approach to books is when I see a topic that is deserving of more research, or perhaps there's just a lot of miseducation going on in the market, a lot of businesses are missing the mark. That's where I'm like, huh, this might be a good idea for a book. And that's really what the age of influence uh, came out to be, because I think that the concept of digital influence and influencer marketing is just this huge gap between the few companies that get it and really do it well, and the rest of the companies that just have a complete misunderstanding of it. So, Neil, I wanted to ask you exactly how and why you came up with the book. You perfectly answered that. The question then becomes, what are brands missing out? Because I, I, I feel, and, and surely you are an influential person, so you presumably also get these experiences as an influencer being contacted by brands, and you see it from that side as well as advising companies on how to attract influencers. What are brands missing? Well, let's look at the entire digital landscape, right? What can you do as a brand to get the word out about your company to promote your goods and services. So obviously you have a website, sure, or an app. Um, you do SEO because you want to get found in search engines. You do email marketing because you want to get found in people's inboxes. And you hopefully have a blog and you're doing some sort of content marketing, right? Um, part of that might be you know, lead magnets or lead generation assets. And then we have social media marketing, which is, uh, has really come into a pay to play, right? Companies just organically cannot be heard in social today. So they're all paying money to be heard. And this is where companies stop. And they miss out on the biggest potential because 
you know, I mentioned search and I mentioned email. We need to be where our customers are and more and more, especially with this pandemic, they're, they're online all the time. So if they're not searching for information, if they're not reading their emails or texts, they're on social media and your voice is just not getting heard. So really, we then come up with the sixth pillar of what companies can be doing in digital. And this is leveraging other people's voices to do the talking for you. This is truly getting back to the original intent of social media for business, which was somehow inciting word of mouth marketing. This is actually doing that by collaborating with other social media users that can really help you. And what businesses really miss out on is they just equate influence with number of following size of community, regardless of relevance or regardless of how did that person get that famous? Are those followers real, right? Um, I talk about looking at influence in the lens of brand affinity. And I say this because even in the influencer marketing industry, which is very Instagram centric, because that's where a lot of the influencer marketing budgets go, they now define something called a nano influencer. And a nano influencer might have just 1000 followers. So we look around us, we look at our customers, we look at our social media followers, we look at our employees, we look at our partners and we realize you know, there's a lot of people that, that have influence because you know, media influence has become so democratized and people that have been doing social media for year after year, their communities do get bigger. They, they do yield more and more influence. So I talk about in the book, looking at influence in the eyes of brand affinity starting with people that are already active in social media that already know, like, and trust your brand. So I talk about employees. I talk about customers. I talk about partners. Now we have terms in business like employee advocacy and brand advocacy for employees and for our customers, but we never treat them as influencers. We never have this collaborative mindset. And I think this is, you know, the, the missing link here. And then we have our own social media followers. We have people that mention us in social media. The problem with businesses is they reach out to people that don't even, might even not know your brand or might not like your brand. So the relationship is only going to be a one-time transactional affair with very little ROI. Whereas if you work with people that already have a long-term relationship with your brand and like your brand, the end result is going to be better. It's going to be more long-term. And at the end of the day, it's going to be a greater ROI. And I think that's the real paradigm shift that I'm trying to teach businesses that I know there are more and more businesses I hear about starting to do it by building this army of influencers that are brand ambassadors. Um, but I think that we're still at the tip of the iceberg and I think that there's tremendous potential. And this is not just Instagram and YouTube mentor. Uh, over the past few weeks, I've done campaigns with B2B brands on LinkedIn, on Twitter, right? It influences everywhere in social media. It's just a matter of finding who are those people that your target audience is listening to, however many of them or few of them. So Neil, there's a, there's a lot of things that you, you just talked about and, and want to unpack a couple of them. One of them that strikes me, you mentioned Instagram and so on. How do you help a brand that doesn't know what it stands for? Because in the end of the day, if you want to create affinity with your influencers, then it needs to be clear who you are to create that affinity. And and that's the thing, that's the missing piece for me that I feel I see the most. They don't actually know what they're selling. I mean, of course, they're selling widgets, but who are they? And, you know, this question really goes beyond, obviously, influencer marketing. I think today, and I've been doing presentations on this, and my view of 
you know, how businesses need to respond to coronavirus is exactly that. I use a quote from an executive VP at Walmart that says businesses exist to serve society. So why do you do what you do as a business? Who are you trying to serve? How are you trying to serve them? And if you can't answer that question today, boy, um, it's, you, you're, you're gonna be in crisis mode, right? The companies that do know that, that have a very clear vision, a very, very clear picture, a clear brand, are able to move forward today and help their customers in unimaginable ways that were completely different than what they were doing a few months ago. So that is the most important question. And you know, companies have mission statements, they have corporate objectives. And if you don't have one, it's time to create one, right? Why is your business in business? It's really an elementary question, but if you haven't asked yourself that in a long time, maybe you started out doing something, but now you do something a little bit different. You serve a different clientele, or maybe your products and services have evolved beyond what they were originally intended for. Now it's a, it's a time to do a reset, especially today, to a reset actually on, on who you are. Because if you have that messaging down, it's gonna permeate in your website, in your social media, and in your communications with everybody. And it's gonna mean that you're gonna attract the right fans. And those fans are gonna be able to incite the right word of mouth for your brand because they understand your brand. So Minty, you bring up a great point and really, really relevant for today as well. And, and that is a missing link perhaps for a lot of you know, SMBs out there that are listening. I think if you're a startup or if you're an entrepreneur, you might have a more solid vision. Um, you're new or it's just you and you're very clear. But for those that have gone beyond that, it's a great time to question that. And that's not just going to help you with influencer marketing, but with business in general, I believe. One of the observations I have is that when you're a small company, yeah, it might just be you and your founding partners and your founding team and all that. It's not necessarily clear, but it feels more authentic. Then all of a sudden you start scaling up into the big companies and all of a sudden there's pomp and circumstance and cotton mouth and, and horse shit. And, and, and then as you get bigger, the, the problem is the nano, well, how many people they, he's following him or her? Oh, a thousand. That's not enough. I need, you know, I need to sell millions. And so the, as we get bigger, we get less authentic. As we get bigger, we, we're not interested in nano because we can't scale nano, we need celebs who have millions of, because we need to sell millions. And it, it's sort of ironic that, that counterbalance and, and the inability for big companies to stay authentic, because on top of that, they need big numbers. How do you deal with that conflict? There's definitely a lot of that out there, but what we know now is that audiences out there have become extremely fragmented. It's not like the old days where there's only a few, you know, before satellite television, there's only a few TV stations, only a few newspapers and a few radio stations with limited communication channels. Yes, you can bet big, but today that's just not the case. People are really scattered. So even if you were to work with a celebrity, that celebrity, number one, is probably working with a lot of other brands. Number two, their, their audience is fragmented because they're too big what do they stand for, right? What sort of, if they were going to represent your brand, would it be even relevant to their audience or not? And 
what happens over time is that the engagement that that celebrity gets gets less and less and less. Whereas the smaller the influencer, the more niche they are, that engagement, that they, the bond between the influencer and their audience is bigger. So I think brands have already gone through a phase over the last five years where they've spent a lot of money on those celebrities doing exactly what you talk about. And there are many brands that will continue to do that. But if the smart brands are looking at the actual profits, the actual ROI from those activities, they may find at some point that smaller influencers perform better than celebrities for the reasons that I'm talking about. Now, you know, part of this is agencies and, you know, maybe the agency will push celebrities um, and, and convince the brand. I mean, there's a lot of different things that go on in the industry that the ways that budget is spent and, and what have you. Um, you know, when I work with brands, it's, you know, what is the result that you want to drive? If it's purely number of eyeballs, sure, the bigger, the better. But I think once you get beyond that, if you actually want engagement or you want clicks or you want people to go somewhere or you want people to do something, it is a very, very different picture. It, it's similar to if you were to, you know, publish an ad in five different newspapers you're gonna get very, very different results. And the biggest newspaper doesn't always deliver the best results. If you were gonna do a Facebook ad and a LinkedIn ad, Facebook has three times the number of users than LinkedIn has. It doesn't mean it's gonna be more effective depending on your business. For some businesses, it will be more effective. So you know, at, at the bottom of this discussion is a data analysis. It's in, in marketing, you know, it, it's a data-driven A-B testing approach that says, let's try different tiers of influencers. Let's try different media and actually look at the data and find out what does best for us. Because you're right, Minter, for some brands, that actually may be best. If, if they're a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi, why work with nano influencers? It, it is a lot more work without a doubt. Um, and, and for those brands, maybe the ROI is not as important as just pure marketing spend and eyeballs to maintain their brand equity. So every business and brand is very, very different, but every one of them can leverage influencers in a different way, you know, based on how I presented, you know, who is out there and what your options are. So, you know, once again, I get back to the results. What are the results that that brand wants to get and how can we deliver on those results? And that's where the discussion should start. And celebrities can be an option, but they're not the only option, I think is the big message here. Yeah, at the end of the day, whether it's a celebrity or widespread influencer the the overwhelming feeling i have is that it, it is inevitably a transaction what reach are you going to give for me and how much is that going to cost and then there should be no surprise that in year two they decide to go with a competitor who's offered them a bigger number for that it just doesn't feel authentic and on top of that as you say if I'm a, a very large celebrity and I've done 20 films, I have actually 20 sets of different fans, right? Because they liked me as the mafia guy, they liked me as the pizza person or whatever I have in my characters. I mean, of course, some of them like me overall, but why on earth would I then buy a Rolex watch from me because I'm wearing a Rolex watch? What has that to do with the role like pizza and mafia? And so that you, you, they need shortcuts, but the shortcuts are costly. And, and of course, I, I really feel like agencies are part of the problem. They tend to sell what they know how to do, but that may not be what their brand needs. Yeah, and I, I bring up a case of that in the book that I experienced where an agency was pushing 
these lifestyle influencers to a business book author that were just completely irrelevant. But I, I think, you know, when we talk about celebrities in social media, there's someone named Charlie. If you have a high school age daughter, they probably heard of her, but she's just blown up on TikTok over the last year. She was in a commercial during the Super Bowl. So when you get to that status and Disney is talking to you about creating, you know, a TV show with you, that's a celebrity. You're no longer a quote unquote social media influencer. You've gone beyond that into traditional media. So these celebrities like the Kardashians, that is really a celebrity endorsement. That's like in the old days, paying Michael Jackson to do a commercial for Pepsi, right? It's no different. So if you're used to doing that, then that's great. But if you never thought about hiring a celebrity, an actor or actress to do a TV ad, then perhaps that's not the approach you should be taking here as well. It's, it's really the same thing. When I talk about social media influencers, I'm talking about people that don't necessarily make money from, they don't, they don't you know, make as much money from their influence as a celebrity does, right? They still are deeply rooted in their social media community and they still have influence there. Whereas these people that, that graduate from social media influence as a celebrity, they have influence everywhere. It's not just about social media. It's, you know, it's gone beyond that. So I think that there is a slight distinction there. But, um, but yeah, it, it does tend to be transactional, which is another reason why when you have people with brand affinity, just offering them free product, offering them exclusive access to new products a week before everybody else has, uh, offering them a, a dedicated you know, platinum customer support number when maybe they're only at the silver level you know, it doesn't have to be transactional in the way in which we think about celebrity endorsements, which is paying a lot of money for a one-time transaction. And that's the other benefit of thinking in terms of brand affinity. And, and what strikes me, Neil, is, is sometimes this notion of understanding who we are. And an example that comes to mind at the top end is Oprah. She has a fantastic human interest story. She's created a community and a bunch of people who hang on her every word. And so she's not only a celebrity, she's an influential celebrity. There are others who we can give a toss about them, what they're saying. There's no credibility, there's no backstory, there's no reality to them. They're just sort of in it for the gig, for the money. They get one contract, they take it. And then the on the one hand, that's so the issue is on the one hand, does the influencer actually know who they are? Now, on the other hand, does the brand know who they are? And, it, and for having worked at L'Oreal, I saw many times incongruencies because A, the brand didn't have a strong understanding of who it is. They would just go after vanity metrics pushed by an agency that only knows how to make that happen. Because the other one, as you say, actually takes time, work, personalizing messages. And then whether you're working on LinkedIn or Facebook or whether you actually have to tailor it to the platform that you're using and the vocabulary that your community in each area is expecting. So it's, it's a lot of hard work. And that shortcut to, you know, slap a 30 second ad versus pay in the ass, a thousand messages customized to each individual, a little nano. Well, I can see laziness winning out a lot of times. Yeah, without a doubt, like anything else, you know, working and I'll never forget speaking with an influencer marketing tool company when that term of micro and then nano influencers came to be. I mean, they had the exact same statement, which is it just it doesn't scale. It's hard to work with a lot of people. And that's why I like this approach 
of creating a group, creating a program, creating an army of ambassadors, that has the ability to scale, right? Yes, it takes one-to-one relationships to get them into your program and to get to know them. But if you really want to be effective with this and you have no clue who you're dealing with, um, it's easy to throw a lot of money against the wall and say, hey, it was successful because you had a 0.01% conversion, right? Um, you know, I think for, for brands that want to get smart with their marketing budget, it, it's really the only way to go because these are people, they're not programmable ad units. And if you become better friends with them, they're going to talk about you without you even asking them to do so. This is the benefit of sort of converting influencers into brand advocates over time. So that's the challenge. And, you know, I've seen some companies actually use people from their public relations, not marketing, because marketing is one to many, whereas true influencer marketing really requires a one to one, almost media outreach type of approach that public relations professionals are really good at. Similar to how we saw a lot of journalists end up becoming content marketers, you know, over the last several years as, as uh, you know, the traditional media started bleeding jobs. Um, I see a similar thing possible with public relations moving into influencer relations because that's more of what it is about and just the, the you know, the many benefits that companies can reap from that. One of the things that we're two white males talking, it strikes me, you mentioned it a lot of times, really, the majority of influencers that I see, if Instagram, for example, is the core platform, it, it feels to me completely dominated by women, girls. And the, the narrative in my head is that they know how to share at a much more intimate, emotional level. Guys suck at that. Of course, that's a generalization. But, it, it, and you know, and I think back to my days when I worked at Laurie Howe and and back in those days, 93% of our top hierarchy were males. And, and yet, over 90% of all decisions of all cosmetics for men and women and the house was always done by women. And then, on, then you say, well, it's different in the car business, not at all. Car, car decision makers are typically the woman in the household. I, I get the feeling that, I mean, the, the, <laughs> you just slam me down if I'm wrong. But actually, why don't we call it women marketing instead of influencer marketing? Well, there's more than that, but I mean, think about visual things that sell. I, I think of fashion, I think of cosmetics, um, travel. So when you think about fashion, there's men's fashion, but I don't know what the breakdown of, of the market is of men's fashion versus women's fashion. I, would tend to believe there's probably a bigger market for women's fashion. Well, hell yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, I mean, like by a country mile. <laughs> right. Beauty as well. Yes, there are men's products. I have L'Oreal men's uh, charcoal, you know, face wash, by the way. But, uh, but yeah, it's mainly, so if you think about it that way, and the fact that, um, you know, what, what Instagram has done with their introduction of filters and how it's progressed since then is they make you look beautiful, right? And, and it sort of taps into that beauty that, not to say that men don't chase that as well, but I think generally speaking, that women are more aligned with that. So I, I don't think it's limited to females. I mean, you see another visual network like Pinterest have like, you know, 70 to 80% female. And we talk about mommy bloggers. We don't talk about daddy bloggers. So 
there's a there's there, there's a lot of cultural and economical and uh, sociological reasons why this is the case. Um, I, I definitely wouldn't limit it. You know, when I look at influencers out there, when I think of business influencers, they're overwhelmingly male. Well, yeah, I get right, that. So, and I, of course, I was just being provocative. Oh, of course, a, of course. A, I'm going to say, I bet your wife had something to say about that charcoal product that you got from Laya Perry, and she said, yes or no. That's just a guess. Secondly, it's not about beauty. What I think is interesting is that more often than not, it's about sharing. And the desire to share at a more horizontal peer level is so much more evident in, in, a, in a girl's environment, right, which I've noticed, where it's much more hierarchical when it comes to boys. You know, I'm more powerful than you, I'm more stronger, I got a bigger title, my car is bigger. And that's just not connecting. So what I observe is, and it comes from, I study women's studies at, at university. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I saw it from a very early age and I, I kind of have latched onto it and it's a generalization, Neil. So yeah, okay. I'm going to get slammed for that. Yet I feel that this notion of, of willingness to share and to show that I'm imperfect is something I see far more prevalently in, in women and in girls especially in social, of course you got the, you know, I'm perfect, you know, and that's for those of you who didn't see the visual, this is an audio, um, you know, it's like the, the retouched. Yeah, of course. And, and life isn't exactly what we present on Instagram yet. Do I feel a greater sense of more integrity, at least more reality and, and more compassionate sharing that is far more engaging and, and that's why interest in Instagram are dominated by women. And I would argue that the majority of the sharing that goes on in a Facebook program, if we could know it, is more female-oriented than male. Well, I, I think those are really interesting points. And I think that going – two things come to mind to add fuel to the fire. Number one, when we think of the word chatty, do we generally associate chatty with male or female, generally speaking? Women. Correct. So at the heart of it, there's a generalization that, that women are more conversational than men, that, which may not necessarily be the case. But I think that as a society, at least, at least that's sort of been ingrained with me. And therefore, if you're more conversational, then obviously in social media, you're going to be more open to having those conversations. But the other one is, you know, as a man, you can't show vulnerability, right? Now, and if you don't show vulnerability, then... Do you have authenticity? Correct. And that's a, that is a challenge for men today. Now, I think this is also generational. I think when we get to the millennials, it might be a little bit different, but definitely, you know, growing up and in, in the Hollywood movies and the mass media, that's sort of ingrained in you. Men need to be strong. You know, you can't show that. And it's a very common word we, we hear about in social media is you need to show your vulnerability. And perhaps women are, are, are easier to do this. They go through something called pregnancy. They give birth. They, they go through a lot more emotional, hormonal imbalances than men do probably. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's probably something scientific there. Um, so, you know, they are probably more used to showing that vulnerability. In fact, they, they can be vulnerable. You know, society doesn't look upon them if they are, right? Yeah, and that creates a greater engagement. 
So I wanted to touch on one last piece. It, it taps into human emotion and it, it, it creates a deeper bond as well. Um, and maybe that, maybe us men are just trying to emulate that now. <laughs> we can work on it. We have room for improvement, Neil. The, the last area I'd like to address is, is so you address plenty of, plentifully in the book, is, is this notion of employee engagement. And a couple of things. One, the idea of the brand and what you stand for and how, what role should an employee play. The number of times I see social media profiles saying, my views do not represent the company for which I work. And I'm thinking, wow, corporate PR said, you know, that's what you have to do. They gave them instruction that that's what they should play. So if I'm a person and I read that, I'm thinking, I'm wondering about the integrity of the conversation. It feels like they may be expressing something, but it can't be representative of the company for which they work. At some level, is, is, what's your opinion of that? And how, how should a company try to really promote employee engagement and employee advocacy? Well, there are two sides to that. So one side is there are some industries that are heavily regulated, you know, financial services, pharmaceuticals, sure. if you're a lawyer, if you work in the government. So I understand that there are certain people that, um, that, that they have to put that from a legal perspective. But I also know it's really interesting when I wrote the book, my, my editor was very careful in saying, you know, Neil, I don't know about this chapter on employee engagement because there are companies where you cannot talk about the company in social media. And it's funny because when I presented on this, when I spoke in Dublin, there was a gentleman there from Facebook UK. And he mentioned that Facebook employees cannot write a review for Portal on Amazon. It was forbidden to write any review, even though they, they think it's a great product they want to share with the world, they can't. So there are certain companies that do place certain legal restrictions on their employees. Now on the flip side, are those restrictions, are they rational or not? Is it just being as conservative as possible? And what I tell people is, look, social media is not, it's like the cell phone. It's like the fax machine. It's out there. And, you know, people are not going to do stupid things. If they do do stupid things, you have the ability to use social media tools to, to find out if they did do this, if they did do bad things. But I think it comes down to the benefits versus the potential disadvantages of having your employees in social media. I mean, the millennials who are the majority of the workforce, they're already there. You can't restrict them. Now, you can say, we don't want you to talk about our company in social media. Well, they're not going to say anything good about your company then, right? So it's an amazing you know, power that companies should find a way to tap into. They should consult with their lawyer. And I mentioned this in the book as well. Consult with your lawyer. But also, if your lawyer is really not experienced in social media law or how the law applies to, to digital social media, maybe try to find a specialist that can help you through this. Because there are a lot of companies that are doing this and they're doing it well. And it's, it, it's really a collaboration. You're not forcing anybody to do anything. You're influencing your employees. And you're also looking for opportunities to work together with them. Great example. So I think I mentioned this before, Minter. One of my clients is a, uh, a hair color company that L'Oreal is one of their, if not their biggest competitor. And so they're writing blog content. They, they have a writer writing blog content about hair, right? And then it's like, well, we have 
internal people that educate stylists and barbers on how to use our color. Why wouldn't we tap into this employee to help with our content? And this is, you know, we, we always think about using influencers for content amplification, but there's equal if not greater value for using them for content creation or to create a focus group, which the L'Oreal's and I, I had a job offer from Procter & Gamble back in the day. Um, why wouldn't you have a focus group with people that already know, like, and trust your brand? And this is another way in which you can leverage employees and influencers outside of your company. So we're just talking about it. It's, it's, you know, it's a focus group slash um, creative content creation studio slash yes, maybe they'll incite a little bit of word of mouth on our behalf. It's a small investment to make, but you can see the various benefits and then just getting feedback for your product marketing. Um, there's just so many benefits to have. So when you stop looking at social media as a way to promote yourself, and when you start looking at social media as a way to collaborate with others and find ways to get your voice heard, it opens up lots of opportunities. The word that I can't help but pronounce is ego. Because the idea of collaborating means that, well, uh, they may have some power. We're going to listen to them. We're going to use their ideas. A lot of times, and I can speak from experience in L'Oreal anyway, we were paid for having the ideas. We were paid for being the generator. And there is required a certain humility to want to listen to numbskull client one of one million as opposed to me i'm the product manager the, the group product my director whatever big title and and that desire to go in under and and really be like on the same level playing field is awfully challenging for marketers on top of that there's a million people's ideas and so i have to then sift through that and and understand of the million which are the right ideas so it's not always easy for sure, but there is a, I feel this underwriting notion of, of getting off, off the ego hat in order to feel like I can collaborate, want to hang out with customers. Well, and that's why big brands that have those organizations often find it hard to innovate. And that's why you have startups that come out of nowhere that grab market share because they're aligned with your customer they're they're you know they're on the same wavelength they have a better understanding and i think if you're not tapping into your user base frequently not just for getting potentially excuse me new ideas but also um just to make sure that there's an alignment there because you know things change so fast something you created 20 years ago it might still sell today but there's often adjustments you need to be making to that product over time and I don't see how sitting in an ivory tower and I mean, perhaps you can, you know, uh, spend some money on market research companies to do this for you, but they have their own sort of, you know, methodology and whether that's good or not in, in today's age, I don't know, but social media is just, yes, there, there is work involved. I don't think you need to listen to 1 million people, but there are savvy ways of looking at trends, trying to bring numbers together to try to get a better view and certainly, um, 
yeah, I mean, this this explains why so many startups are successful and are able to, to defeat bigger companies. And from a big company, well, we lost a 0.1% market share. Doesn't On the big scope, it doesn't matter. But over time, obviously, that might matter. A friend of mine, Kat Skeely, I had, on, I had her on my show recently. She launched a whole program around the front line. And, and so it's, it's about creating PPE equipment mm. for people who are nurses and doctors who are missing PPE equipment. And, and she, her overriding message, which was lovely, which is don't be afraid to ask the people on the front line. And these are the people who are actually engaging with and interacting with your customers. Neil, thank you so much for coming on this. I, I enjoyed the age of influence. I think it's a, a critical topic and and the i what i loved in your subtitle was this notion of elevating your brand and i think that for me the big issue is does a brand know who it wants to be and where it wants to elevate to and until that question is solved it really becomes hard to create affinity whether it's with your employees at an authentic level or with your influencers and then your customers until that that's the issue for me of course, you still have to have an ROI and you have to be practical. But that's where I sit. Tell us, Neil, how we can get in touch with you, follow you, get your new book, The Age of Influence. Thank you for that commentary, Mentor. I think I think you're you're bang on. And really the the branding is it's you gotta build your home. <laughs> um, everything starts, everything emanates from there. So if you don't have that right, then um, everything else will, will, will not be successful. So, but, but especially, you know, when I talked about those different silos of digital marketing, definitely when we get into the influencer, it really does come down to one-on-one. You're reaching out to people, you're communicating with them. How are you going to talk about your company? Why would they want to collaborate with your company? And, and the branding gets so important. So um, that's, that's a yeah, really powerful addition, I, love, I thought. So thank you. And I, but I like the idea of, you know, using PR mentality, and, and cultivating relationship and then and then thinking what's in it for them and how can you help them with their brand and, and how can they obviously conversely help you but making it a, a, a value exchange that's valuable for both sides and, and too often we forget that. Neil, how can we follow you and, and get your book? All right. Well I am Neil Schaefer everywhere in on the internet, social media, N E A L S C H A F F E R. I also also have a podcast called Maximize Your Social Influence with Neil Schaefer, just publishing episode 160 tomorrow. Congratulations. If you're more, thank you. If you're more interested in this, about this concept of influence and how it relates to sales and marketing, you'll want to check that out. And then the age of influence is it's available everywhere books are sold. So whether it's Amazon or I think in the UK, you have like Waterstone or something like that. Um, Yeah. In Canada, you got Indigo, Barnes and Noble, wherever you buy books, there's, there's an audio version. There's an ebook version. There's a paperback version. Uh, You should be able to find it. I'll put those all in the show notes. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Minter. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of a stranger 
Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.